Welcome back to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind featuring Michael and Josh. We've got another blockbuster episode for you today and an omission of both our parts that we haven't spoken about this very aggressive disease that must be treated almost urgently. It's one of those few cancers that you can't sit waiting for the histopathology to come back. If you think it is this, then you've got to target it. Michael, before we get into the background, how are you going today? I'm going well, Josh. And yes, I always say that the subject of our episode today is one of the very few things that will make a medical oncologist actually get up off his very comfy chair and rush to give treatment. This is the one thing that normally separates us from our haematology colleagues who need chemo now, now, now to save people's lives. But this is probably the exception that proves the rule. Or her comfy chair. That is very true. (laughs) Mikey, do you want to give us a bit of a background? I haven't actually given this cancer type, but it's worthwhile talking about. Absolutely. So today we are talking about small cell lung cancer, the only type of cancer that exclusively presents on a Friday afternoon when you have one eye on the door. The small cell lung cancer is characterized, as we have uh, intimated already, by a very rapid doubling time, a high growth fraction, and the early development of widespread disease. Josh, the median overall survival for untreated small cell cancer is what? I think it's about 15 to 20 months, but I feel that those statistics are actually pretty now, they're, they're pretty optimistic. I would say less than six months. Well, optimistic, but you missed the critical word there, which is untreated. Well, then I would say three months. Three months is, I, I think it's still very optimistic. The the Six weeks, two weeks, y- a week. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> it depends on how extensive this disease is, right? Yeah, so, so a metastatic, or as we shall talk about briefly, extensive stage, small cell lung cancer without treatment, the prognosis is measured in weeks. So we are talking about a highly aggressive disease that not only spreads rapidly, but also has a predilection, as many lung cancers do, for the central nervous system. Mikey, I really need to listen to you when you ask if it's treated or untreated. I feel I always get this wrong because I just, I'm with the fairies. It's it's just that uh, tripwire that I constantly extend and you always trip over. It's great. But let's talk more about small cell lung cancer. So it is a type of high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma. It's part of a group that also includes large cell neuroendocrine tumors, as well as high-grade neuroendocrine tumors of the gastrointestinal tract. And ultimately, all of these are treated broadly the same. Small cell lung cancer typically arises in central airways. The most common presentation is a hilar mass with bulky mediastinal lymphadenopathy, which presents as cough, dyspnea, rapid weight loss, and rapid decrease in functional status. Interestingly, Josh, hemoptysis and post-obstructive pneumonia, uh, both of which were, in my mind, always sort of red flag symptoms of quote-unquote lung cancer, are actually less common in small cell. They're much more a feature of squamous cell lung cancer. Why is that? So there is a histopathological explanation, and I'm not even going to pretend that I understood it when I read it. It's something about the layer of invasion of small cell as opposed to squamous cell. I think squamous cell uh, affects a more surface layer of the epithelium. 
and therefore is more likely to bleed. That's all you're going to get from me, Josh. That's all right. I'm still fuming about my overall survival of small cell lung cancer. It's not embarrassing (laughs) at all. So the most common sites of disease for extensive stage small cell lung cancer, as mentioned, liver, bones, and brain. And the latter of, of which is critical in the workup of any even suspected small cell. Um, you always have to have a baseline CT brain because your treatment paradigm is going to change ever so slightly if a patient has brain meds. Now, the other quirk with small cell, again, feeding back into the similarities with uh, Uh, other hematological high-grade malignancies, particularly lymphoma, is that is highly responsive to existing chemotherapy and immunotherapy. However, unlike treatment of lymphomas, there is a very, very high relapse rate. I will talk about the staging because we've been banging on about extensive stage small cell and uh, some of our listeners might be saying, what the hell are you talking about? We're not using TNM with, uh, with small cell and we don't. Michael, what are you talking about? Tell me, tell me all. You'd be surprised how often Josh asked me that question. But small cell lung cancer is staged in a very, very simple manner. It's divided into two uh, stages, limited stage and extensive stage. So with limited stage, the tumor is confined to the ipsilateral hemithorax and regional lymph nodes. The practical offshoot of this is that limited stage disease is able to be included in a single tolerable radiotherapy field. So we're not, as I always say to patients with extensive disease, turning them into a fish finger by irradiating their whole body. This corresponds, if we're going to put it into TNM parlance, to stages 1 to 3B disease. Extensive stage small cell is basically anything that is beyond this. So the cancer is not able to be treated with a single radiotherapy field, and the practical implications of this will become clear when we come Uh, back to small cell in a later episode and talk specifically about limited stage small cell. But radiotherapy has no curative part in extensive stage small cell. Unless you're treating specific lesions, most commonly brain mets or symptomatic bone mets, the majority of treatment takes the form of systemic therapy. And finally, we must come to the prognosis. We've painted a very, very ugly picture of small cell because it's a very ugly disease. Even with patients with limited stage disease, the median overall survival is measured between 15 and 20 months. The median overall survival for extensive stage small cell is 8 to 13 months, and less than 5% of patients with extensive stage small cell are alive at two years, so a very, very nasty disease. Important prognostic factors are performance status, the presence or absence of weight loss, and interestingly, Josh, the continuation of smoking after diagnosis, which is thought to actually contribute to chemo resistance. Here's a question for you, Michael. Have you ever seen anyone live beyond those statistics? In all my years of doing this, and it sounds like I've been doing this for about 20 years, I haven't, but I, of all of the small cell patients I've seen, I think I have only seen one who has lasted for three years. And when I saw her, ironically, she was actually in a highly advanced palliative stage of her cancer journey. So there is, it is a very rare uh, occurrence. What about you, Josh? How many patients have you seen who have lasted beyond that two years? 
Well, it was a leading question, of course. I have seen one patient who was doing very well and had a complete response, and this was over four years, and she was kicking goals apart from some recurrent autoimmune issues down the track, which might be a nice segue to talk about the trial I'm going to discuss today. That's an excellent segue, Josh. Wonderful. Immunotherapy, ladies and gentlemen, I will be discussing the Empower 133 study. So as Michael explained, and I butchered so eloquently, both limited stage and extensive stage small cell lung cancer have terrible prognosis. Prior to atezolizumab development or progress in this field, there was nothing. So that's 20 years of chemotherapy with good initial objective response rates and then resistance and no reason to re-challenge. So when I say that, the initial response rates are actually about as high as 65% and median overall survival sat at the 10-month mark for many years. There was a suggestion that with high mutation rates due to the extensive and aggressiveness of this cancer, it might be immunogenic and respond to immunotherapy. Bring in atezolizumab. It's a humanized monoclonal anti-programmed death ligand PDL1 antibody that inhibits the PDL1 ligand and the B71 component of it, which is signaling and restores tumor-specific T-cell immunity. So like many of the immunotherapy agents, it inhibits the inhibitor to activate the immune system. So the Empower 133 looked at the efficacy and safety of adding a atezolizumab or placebo for first-line treatment with carboplatin and etoposide in patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Sorry, Josh, before you launch into your spiel, can I just take a moment to appreciate the sheer poetry of the phrase, atezolizumab inhibits the inhibitor. Did you enjoy that? I really did. It is great. Please proceed. And I, I must say, I did not steal that from anywhere. The endpoints, primary endpoint was overall survival and progression-free survival in the intention to treat population, and secondary was objective response rate and duration of response. We already know this is a bad cancer when overall survival is their first primary endpoint. The methodology, it was a multinational phase three double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial where there were four induction cycles of carbo, etoposide, and atezolizumab followed by maintenance atezolizumab or placebo until progression or unacceptable toxicity. Prophylactic cranial radiation was permitted during the maintenance phase. Inclusion criteria, so they had to have histologically confirmed extensive stage small cell lung cancer, measurable disease, a good performance status, and no prior therapy. Patients were recruited between June and May of 2016 and 2017, respectively, and they got 403 patients to enroll. Most of the baseline characteristics were quite well balanced, and in the intention to treat population, 104 patients in the atezolizumab group and 116 patients in the placebo group had subsequent therapy. That's telling you something already when there's only 400 patients. The overall survival analysis, the median follow-up was 13.9 months and 51% of the tizolizumab and 66.3% of the placebo arm had died by that time. Overall survival was already statistically significant and conferring the survival in the tizolizumab arm of 12.3 months versus 10.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.7 and the one-year survival rate was 51% versus 38%. Pretty abysmal. 
but it doesn't stop. The progression-free survival analysis, what they found is that 85% of the atezolizumab arm and 93% of the placebo arm had disease progression or died, with a median progression-free survival of 5.2 months in the atezolizumab and 4.3 months in the placebo arm, still with a statistically significant hazard ratio of 0.77, so still 23% better than chemotherapy alone. There were five patients in the intervention arm who had a complete response and two in the placebo arm, which I've never seen in just chemo. Josh, was your long-standing complete response patient one of those patients? Uh, they all... <laughs> I, no, is the answer. <laughs> um, no, because this trial was 2017, so I mean she would have been six years out, or the patient would have been six years out. When you look at the sub-analysis, Mikey, and I put the document up for us both to see... Interesting, interesting, weird variations. And maybe it's just because because a tizolizumab, while not that effective, is better than anything we have. You can see that patients with liver metastases didn't do as well with those without liver metastases as expected. Brain mets, those without, did better than those with brain mets, also as expected. But patients with a good performance status did worse than those with a slightly less good performance status. And maybe that's because of the, the number and the statistics and you want to make it a, you know, statistically significant number. So like numerically, yes, but statistically not so much. I think the other thing is probably more than with other tumor types is that it's so hard to draw conclusions of any validity with these forest plots with small cell because small cell really doesn't care for how fit you are. So it might just be Again, as we have said, a comment more on the disease than the patient populations. Potentially. And one thing, because I want to wrap this up because we've already got the synopsis here. When we look at objective confirmed response rates, actually better in the placebo arm and partial response was slightly better in the placebo arm as well. Median duration of response was definitely better in the atezolizumab group and the ongoing response was better in the atezolizumab arm. So they had 15% of patients who had an ongoing response in the atezolizumab and only 5% in the control arm. I'm not going to go into adverse events because I, that's not important here, but the updated analysis from 2020, median follow-up with for the overall survival was 22.9 months. And again, that hazard ratio was pretty similar at 0.76 and statistically significant. You get two extra months with atezolizumab versus control. And at 18 months, 34% of atezolizumab patients and 21% of control patients were alive. And the benefit is seen irrespective of PDL1 immunohistochemistry or TMB status. So certainly something that has improved outcomes overall, but probably not as much as we were all hoping. I'm sure we were all hoping that this would be some sort of silver bullet against this incredibly difficult to treat cancer. It hasn't quite been that, has it, Josh? No, no, but you do you do see the stories. I, I've seen one in real life, which sounds terrible when you've only seen one, but it's definitely something. It is just very far off the where we want our cancer treatment to be. Absolutely. And the problem is, as we have said before, that small cell is notorious for being recurrent, which, again, separates it from several other tumour types that we treat its much more of a it goes away 
we relax, and then it comes back with a vengeance. And the pattern of recurrence is predictive of outcomes, and it's really divided into three groups. Those with the refractory disease, where if you do an initial PET scan, for patients with small cell lung cancer, they frequently, many centres will do a PET scan in the middle of their chemo-IO combination treatment. And if you're having no response, these patients do very, very badly. Patients with, quote, resistance disease have a disease-free interval of less than three months, so they just get off their chemo-IO and they recur fairly quickly. Patients with sensitive disease, that's platinum-sensitive effectively, have a disease-free interval of greater than three months. Now, ultimately, as we've said, the vast majority will recur, but if you have sensitive disease, there is an argument to re-challenge with uh, carboplatin and etoposide. But what happens with those first two groups, the refractory disease and the resistant disease? And this brings us to what I think might be our oldest trial that we've ever had on oncology for the inquisitive mind, which is a study of CAV, which is cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristine, two single-agent topotecan in the second-line recurrent setting. Now, the background for this is, as Josh has brilliantly summarized, carboplatin or cisplatin, etoposide, and atezo is established as the standard of care in the first line for extensive stage small cell. And I think there will be very few people who would argue that point. Uh, There is a second study that we won't go into called Caspian, which was basically an identical study, um, but substituting devalimab for atezolizumab. The outcomes were pretty much the same. However, there are no good options for second-line therapy. And when you're putting together a clinical trial, it's hard to enrol these patients. So when Josh said there was 20 years of nothing before Atezo, that was part of the difficulty is, is creating studies for small cell is so difficult. Michael, what second-line therapies have you ever used? I tend to uh, use CAV if I can, but I've seen patients with single-agent paclitaxel, irinotecan, that's what I tend to use for patients who are still desperate for treatment but not very good functionally. I've... I haven't used it myself, but I've seen topotecan, lerbinectidin used as well. They tend to be quite toxic. Which brings us to this study from 1999, uh, which was published by von Powell, Schiller, Shepard et al. 1999, Josh, I was six years old. I'm assuming you were still 30 or so. And (laughs) (laughs) that's the only, that's the that's the only joke I'm going to do, I promise. You mean you being six years old, I, I think all of the oncologists listening are like, hmm, he's a six-year-old presenting a study. He's either a, a child well, genius. I didn't present the study when I was six years old. That was uh, Dr. Do- Doogie Hauser, MD. <laughs> um, but this this is a relatively large phase three study, um, which, as I've mentioned before, is, is impressive in and of itself. They managed to enroll 211 people to either CAV or Topotecan, randomizing them one-to-one. Eligibility criteria, patients had to have progressive disease at least 60 days after the last dose of systemic therapy. So this excluded the aforementioned refractory patients, so weeded out some of those those poor players. It's also important to note, I know it seems obvious, but this predated atezolizumab. So the standard of care for first line was um, carboplatin and etoposide or cisplatin and etoposide, but patients 
occasionally still got CAV as first-line therapy. So that's the other wrinkle is that, uh, as we'll see, a number of patients had already had CAV in the um, in the CAV arm. Uh, patients had to be ECOG performance status 0 to 2. Exclusion criteria uh, were notable for excluding patients with symptomatic brain meds, which is going to be a significant proportion of patients at this stage. Cardiac disease, that's the doxorubicin component, and demyelinating polyneuropathy, which is another association with CAV. In terms of demographic notes, the majority of patients had received first-line platinum inetoposide, and about 40% in both groups had had prior cyclophosphamide and an anthracycline. 11% versus 24%, so that's 11% in the Topotecan group versus 24% in the CAV group, had documented brain metastases. So that is a bit of a discrepancy that we should mention. Just to clarify, because I know not a lot of people will have used these two regimens, Topotecan is given IV in days 1 to 5 of a 21-day cycle, and CAV is given purely on day 1 of a 21-day cycle. In terms of duration of treatment, if there was an initial complete or partial response, treatment was continued until progressive disease. If the initial response demonstrated stable disease, patients could either be ceased after four cycles or continued at investigator discretion. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, with the secondary endpoints being myriad, duration of response, time to response, PFS, OS, and symptomatic improvement, which was via a questionnaire. Now, it's important to note as well that these questionnaires are not validated quality of life instruments. We've seen the um, EORTC E30, I think that the QT, QTC or QTQE30 um, questionnaires that are used in a lot of other studies. This is not that. These are specific symptom-specific questionnaires for small cell lung cancer. In terms of overall response rate, I hope you're ready for some very dismal numbers. I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> Josh Josh is ready. We hope you are too, listeners. The overall response rate for Topatikan was 24.3% versus 18.3% in the CAV arm. The overall response rate in patients who received previous cyclophosphamide and anthracyclines was 26% in the Topatikan arm versus 20% in the CAV arm, which is interesting because for 20% of patients who are effectively giving them the same treatment. Presumably, these are patients who had had a good initial response to the CAV. 13.6 versus 4.8% had treatment-resistant disease. So again, a very small amount of these patients are what we would call bad players. And if we look at the absolute numbers, three in the Topotecan arm and one in the CAV arm met the criteria for treatment-resistant disease. So very, very small. In terms of overall survival... This is the first study in a while where the overall survival is measured in weeks. And I've even bolded it in on my notes here. Uh, so in the Topotecan arm, the overall survival was 25 weeks versus 24.7 weeks in the CAV arm with a hazard ratio of 1.03. That was not statistically significant, obviously not clinically significant either. Six-month survival rates were around 45% in both arms and 12-month survival rates were around 14%. Duration of response, again, measured in weeks, 14 versus 15. The progression-free survival, again, measured in weeks, 13 versus 12. None of these results are statistically significant. So with coming back to these symptom-specific questionnaires, I couldn't find actually what the questionnaire was, but honestly, the uh, article, the copy of the article that I found looked like it had been written on a typewriter. So the questionnaires demonstrated improvement for dyspnea anorexia, hoarseness of voice, and fatigue with topotecan. Now, 
in the few examples that I've seen Topatikan used, it really knocks people about. Josh, I don't know what your experience with Topatikan is, but uh, but I'm not 100% sure that I agree with the um, the results of these surveys. Michael, everything you said has been really fascinating, but I have to know, have you ever lived in a world without the internet? I mean, technically, yes, but I don't remember it. <laughs> okay, that's that, that's what I got from... That is what I got from your whole spiel about... I, I don't even know. Um, I don't know why that came into my head, but <laughs> irrespective of it, because you said a typewriter, and I'm like, 1999. Anyway, so Topa I have used. It's really difficult to tolerate. I had one patient. I just remember him like wanting to force himself to continue a treatment, and it's just... From memory, the symptoms, although I can't remember all of them, just so much lethargy and fatigue and potentially also just disease progression in that particular circumstance, but it was just phenomenally bad. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. I uh, for, To your previous note, Josh, about whether I've uh, ever lived in a world without the internet, um, I have also made a note here that patients were randomised by a telephone randomization system. Now, any study that came out after the internet was patients are randomized by uh, uh, internet databases, but uh, I thought that was the first time that I've seen that written in an article. I did look at one specific fact. So the World Wide Web became available to the broader public 30 years ago on the 30th of April, 1993. So technically, technically, I was alive <laughs> for a month before the World Wide Web was available. Happy birthday to both Michael and the World Wide Web, everyone. (laughs) Absolutely. I think the fact that we're talking about this more than the study uh, makes our feelings on second-line treatment for small cell lung cancer quite clear. Um, In terms of safety, Josh, you really hit the nail on the head. Significant toxicity, alopecia fatigue, GI disturbances, but the rate of hematological toxicity was so great that grade four neutropenia was actually more common, affecting about 70% of patients in both arms than grade three neutropenia. Topotecan had higher rates of anemia and thrombocytopenia, which probably contributes to the overwhelming sense of fatigue. And even though this probably predated uh, protocolized management of febrile neutropenia, but there were seven deaths associated with myelosuppression in combination with sepsis uh, across the two groups, four in the topotecan and three in the cav arm. So toxic, not very effective. And in conclusion, that's that's basically it. Neither topotecan nor cav are very attractive options, to be honest, for second-line treatment of small cell lung cancer. And in my centre, I must be honest, um, irinotecan, which was a fresh new face at the time this study came out, it was only granted initial FDA approval for colorectal cancer, I believe it was, um, in 1998, so a year a year before this came out, but I've seen irinotecan, paclitaxel used more frequently than either of these agents. Lebanectin is not available in Australia. It is occasionally available on studies because it's an it's the new kid on the block, only coming to light in about 2020. But um, in 1999, I guess as now the the prospect of treatment in the second line setting for extensive stage small cell is very grim. We've sort of mentioned some of the limitations. I won't belabor the point. And despite all of this, it is notable to say that, as Josh mentioned, nothing has really come along to beat 
either Kev or Topa Tikan, aside from sort of toxicity. This is an area of study, specifically small trials investigating the use of PARP inhibitors. Now, small cell at a molecular level does seem to overexpress PARP and other DNA repair uh, mechanisms. So using um, PARP inhibitors and ATR inhibitors and various other um, blockers of DNA repair has been investigated and shows some positive signals, but again, no significant benefit in the things that really matter to patients, which is overall survival, progression-free survival and toxicity. And again, really underscores the difficulty of running prospective randomized studies in such an aggressive disease. I might conclude our episode, Michael. Conclude away, Josh. Atizolizumab works. It improves overall survival by two months. And Topotecan and the other combination of Cav. drugs. Cav. Atizolizumab. It, so, it's, I, I might, <laughs> it's, it's so bad, Josh has already forgotten what it's called. Michael, I'll just I'll just do that again. In conclusion, Michael has shown there are some second line options and they have very limited efficacy. But when you're in that position, you're going to trial these things unless there's something better that comes along. And thirdly, and thirdly, I'm going to hijack Josh's list. If there happens to be a clinical trial somewhere at your center or a center near you, it's really, really worth trying to get these patients on and getting them on early. Now they're few and far between, but have a look. One of the best ways to do that, as we've discussed through this episode, is use the World Wide Web. (laughs) That'll be the last last time I mention this. Next week, which which was born in 1993. April 3rd. As we've... As we have established. April 30th, everyone. Next week, we have a special guest, Dr. Ash Malala-Sakera. Ash is brilliant, wonderful, and kind, and she is spearheading the survivorship campaign for patients who, unfortunately, not the small cell lung cancer component, but lots of our other cancers, and looking at ways to manage long-term toxicity and long-term challenges with patients who survive past their cancer. It's a really insightful episode. So we hope you can join us next week. We'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.